The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated and good morning again. Welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. And this comes from Acts chapter 17, where some Christians come to town, and an angry mob says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they're saying that there's another king besides Caesar, Jesus. And the church, empowered by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, has been turning the world upside down ever since. And today we're going to be looking at one of the things that the early church declared that turned the world upside down. Something that the church believes and says that can often put it at odds with the world around it. And it's that there's no other name by which anyone can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. 
That is the exclusive claim of Christianity, that there is no other way to be saved but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look more closely at Acts chapter 4 and the uh, exclusive claim of Christianity, we'll have three points. First, exclusivity. Second, inclusivity. And then third, flexibility. So let's start with our first point, exclusivity. I am a uh, rewards member at a store called Total Wine and More. That's where I like to go to get a nice bottle of bourbon or wine. And as a rewards member, I am entitled to certain exclusive offers. From time to time, Total Wine will get a limited number of some bourbon or whiskey, and they will tell the rewards members, hey, we have these bottles, but we're not going to make them available to the general public, only to members. They are member exclusives. And so sign up or let us know if you want one of these bottles. They are exclusively available for members only. That's the only way that you can get them to be a rewards member. That's what makes them exclusive. In our passage in Acts 4, the Apostle Peter makes an exclusive claim. Peter and John are arrested for performing their healing miracle and preaching that Jesus has resurrected. And the religious leaders interrogate them and ask how they did the healing. And Peter says, as he said before, that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that the man has been healed. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And then Peter says in verses 11 and 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, just Jesus. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus. There's no one else. There's no other way. Jesus is exclusively the way of salvation. And this sort of exclusive claim about Christianity isn't limited to just this chapter in Acts. It comes up all over the place. Ten Commandments. Have no other gods but me. The Shema from our time of renewal. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Jump to the New Testament. And Jesus, Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus again in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. You get the picture, right? Scripture, Jesus, the apostles all make exclusive claims about Christianity. All people have an eternal debt before the living and true God, and there's no other way to deal with that debt except through Jesus Christ. That is the claim of Christianity, and it is an exclusive claim. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved, only Jesus. And so how should we respond to these exclusive claims? What should we do with them? Well, the first thing you need to do is realize that this puts every one of us into an either-or situation. 
And look, I'm, I'm a big fan of approaching subjects and situations with nuance. You know, I think a lot of situations that we might think are black and white might actually be some shade of gray, and often things that seem like an either-or are actually a both-and, but not this. This is black and white. This is not nuanced. This is an either-or. Christianity claims that Jesus is the only way. It doesn't claim that Jesus is one way. It claims that it is the only way, the exclusive way to salvation. And that claim is either true or it's false. There's no middle ground. Which means that everyone's response to Jesus and Christianity should be a strong reaction. You know, on the one hand, if you judge that it's false, which I personally hope that you don't, but if you do judge that Christianity is false, then Christianity is totally irrelevant. Who cares about it? Christianity makes such exclusive claims about who God is and your spiritual depravity that if you think it's false, why give it a second thought? Just move on. Forget about it. It has nothing to do with you. Jesus must be a liar, or he's crazy, or he didn't even exist. Whichever one it is, no need to engage at all in his teachings or ideas. They're exclusive. But on the other hand, if you do believe that it's true, then it changes absolutely everything. It's the most important truth in the world if it's true. It should radically transform you and everything in your life. There is a God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, totally holy, who I am in debt before because I'm rebellious, because I'm sinful, and yet God loves me so much that he made a way for me to be reconciled with him at no cost to me, but costing him everything. Incredible cost to himself. Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross. If that's true, and it is, if that's true, then that changes everything. The exclusive claims of Christianity make it either all-important or completely irrelevant. What it can't be is mildly influential, sort of important, a nice thing, a hobby, a, a good social group to belong to, right? Like that kind of lukewarm, middle-ground, neutral response to Christianity makes no sense. Either Christianity is the most important thing or the least important thing. It can't be anything in between, Now, I do want to offer a word of warning to those of us who do believe, to those of us who do believe that Jesus is the most important thing, that we've found the only way to God and salvation. A word of warning. The human heart is perpetually tempted towards self-righteousness, even or maybe especially in this conversation about the exclusive claims of Jesus and Christianity, because you might be tempted to feel pretty good about yourself, right? Hey, look at me. I found the only way to God. Pretty smart of me, huh? I know a lot of people who don't know the way, but I do. It's terrible, right? We all need to make sure that there's not even an ounce of that kind of thinking. As a believer, you need to make sure that you have the proper humility toward Christianity's exclusivity. Like, think of it this way. I had a friend in college, this is a true story, who was diagnosed with bone cancer. Osteosarcoma, he had a tumor in the bone of his knee. And to save his life, surgeons had to perform what is called a limb salvage surgery. Essentially, they cut the bone between mid-shin and mid-thigh and just took it all out and replaced it with a metal joint. That was the only way to save his life. The exclusive 
way to save his life, a limb salvage surgery. And you didn't see him going around afterward bragging about having found the exclusive surgery to save his life. He was humbled. He was anything but self-righteous. He was thankful. He knew just how lucky he was that such a procedure was even possible, that his life could be saved. And so believing the exclusive claims of Christianity, there's nothing to brag about there. There's no reason to feel self-righteous. The claims of Christianity are tremendously humbling. They should lead you to be thankful, not proud. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's an exclusive claim, but it is a claim that should humble you. Now, people typically don't like exclusive claims, like the claims made by Jesus and Christianity. It it can tend to make people uncomfortable. It can get some people riled up. Others may just find it straight up offensive. And that was true in the first century, just like it's true today. People don't like exclusivity. They much prefer inclusivity. And so that takes us to our second point, inclusivity. There is a story that you may hear from time to time that is meant to be an apologetic for a more inclusive way uh, to think about different religions. It's an apologetic for inclusivity, and it goes something like this. There were three blind men who came upon an elephant, and they began to touch and feel the elephant to try to make out what it was. So the first man, the first blind man, he's uh, holding on to the elephant's trunk, and he says to the other, this creature is long and flexible like a snake. Second man, uh, he's holding on to the elephant's leg, and he says, no, it's not long and flexible. It's firm and round like a tree trunk. The final man, he's holding on to the elephant's ear, and he says, you're both wrong. It's not long and flexible or firm and round. It's flat and flimsy, more like a pancake. And as the moral of the story goes, that's what people arguing about religion are truly like, like blind men describing different parts of the same elephant. They each can understand part of the elephant, but none of them sees the entire animal. Likewise, different world religions each see part of God, but none of them see all of God. None of them have an exclusive understanding of God, and they should not claim that they do. So there you have it. That's the apologetic for why no one should make exclusive claims about God or religion. Instead, we should be more inclusive and recognize that no one has an exclusive understanding of God. We need all faiths, all religions, all views of God in order to more fully see the true God. Now, as many have pointed out, there is a fatal flaw to that illustration. That apologetic actually undercuts itself. Because the story is told from the point of view of someone who is not blind. It's told from the point of view of someone who claims to see the entire elephant. And you can only claim to know that the men are blind and that they're only touching different parts of the whole elephant if you claim yourself to see the whole elephant. But the whole point of the story is that no one should claim that. No one should claim to see the whole elephant, and so 
the apologetic really undercuts itself. The only way someone can know for sure that others don't have an exclusive understanding of God or religion or salvation is if that person themselves has an exclusive understanding of God or religion or salvation. And so what we see is that even though people don't like the idea of exclusive truth claims, and even though we would much rather pursue inclusivity, there are tremendous difficulties with pursuing inclusivity because, in the end, no one can really avoid making exclusive truth claims. We all have to make them. We all have to live by them. And so let's look at how that happens both in our passage uh, in the first century, but also today in the 21st century. In our passage, there are several actions taken and words spoken that flow from the offense taken at the exclusive truth claims of Peter and John, as well as from a desire to have a more inclusive or pluralistic society. So the very beginning of the passage, for example, verses 1 through 3, it says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And so Peter and John make exclusive truth claims, and what's the response? The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they're greatly annoyed, and in their annoyance, they put them in prison. They arrest them. And they're questioned by rulers and elders and scribes. How did you do that healing? By what power or whose name are you doing it in? And Peter says, by Jesus' power, in his name. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name by which we must be saved. And they don't really know what to do with Peter and John. On the one hand, the man truly was healed. All can see it. But on the other hand, the message that they're proclaiming is a threat. It's disruptive to their society. And so in verses 16 and 17, they say, what shall we do with these men? For that, a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They try to silence them. They tried to prevent them from continuing to make their exclusive truth claims. First, they arrest them, and then they instruct them that they'll let them go, but they shouldn't speak of this anymore. They shouldn't talk about the name of Jesus anymore. And so again, we see there are tremendous problems with pursuing inclusivity. Uh, Often tactics in the name of inclusivity are actually oppressive, like arresting people or silencing them. If you look a little closer, you realize that what lies behind such oppressive or silencing tactics are just different exclusive truth claims, the very thing that supposedly they're trying to prevent. And we see similar things today. At the most extreme end, you have countries where all religion is illegal, it's outlawed, and the government enforces an atheist state. Or similar move, maybe only one religion is legal. And the theory is that if religion is outlawed, uh, then that's as inclusive as you could get. Everyone's, Everyone's on the same level. Or if there's only one religion that's legal, everyone's that religion. It keeps everybody the same. It's more inclusive and works that way. But states that have made religion illegal in the past, or presently, like Soviet Union, North Korea, China, Albania, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, they're not exactly known for inclusive practices. They're better known for being incredibly brutal and oppressive in their actions. 
And of course, that's an extreme approach. So what about a country like ours, where the freedom to practice one's religion is constitutionally protected? Well, on the one hand, freedom of religion is an absolutely wonderful thing about our country. It's a common grace that we should be thanking God for. Anyone can practice any religion here. It would actually be worse for America to be a self-declared Christian nation or for Christianity to be the official religion of the country because you can't force anyone to be a Christian. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be received freely. No one can truly receive it if they're under compulsion. And so the constitutional protection of freedom of religion is a good thing. It lowers the probability that anyone is professing faith in Jesus under compulsion and therefore falsely. And it's more likely that people who profess faith have received him freely, which is the only way to truly receive him. And so freedom of religion is a good thing. It's a common grace to be thankful for. But in practice, I think we all know that freedom of religion in America can often turn into freedom from religion, where, sure, you can practice your religion individually or privately just as long as it doesn't impact your public life, and certainly not the institutions that you belong to or the government. So freedom of religion can often become freedom from religion, which is incredibly naive because everyone is religious, even atheists, even secular people. Everyone is religious. Everyone lives by faith in something. Everyone believes some exclusive truth claims. I mean, a religion at its core is just a set of philosophical beliefs, beliefs that can't be proven scientifically but are held anyway, beliefs that speak to things like God's existence, human condition, where salvation can be found, what heaven or paradise would be like, what happens when you die. And so take atheism or secular humanism. The tenets of the secular religion are that God does not exist. He has no attributes. Humans are just the result of evolutionary biology and nothing more. Morality is a result of evolution too. Salvation can be found in Exclusive or inclusivity or heaven, paradise is maybe world peace, and after you die, you cease to exist. Those are the tenets of a religion believed by faith. They're all exclusive truth claims. They can't be true at the same time as some other exclusive truth claims being true from other religions like Christianity. It has to be one or the other, not both. It's a religion that makes exclusive truth claims just like Christianity does. And so despite our government's best efforts to craft laws that are religiously neutral, you just can't. It's impossible. Every single law in the books in this city, this state, this country, at its core is based on an exclusive truth claim. Some philosophy, some religious belief believed upon faith. There's just no getting around it. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It just becomes a problem when people delude themselves into thinking they've somehow managed to remain non-religious, totally neutral, in their lawmaking. That's just a way of tricking yourself into thinking you're being inclusive when actually you're being exclusive in different ways because it's all based on exclusive truth claims. It's all religious at its core. Religion and exclusive truth claims are unavoidable. The belief that religious doctrine does not matter is in itself a religious doctrine. Trying to convince people that it's arrogant to insist the religion is right and convert others to it is an attempt to convince people that your religion is right and that they should convert to it. 
the belief that all religions are culturally or historically conditioned and therefore should not be normative is itself a religious belief that's culturally and historically conditioned and therefore should not be normative. You get the picture. A Christian philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, addresses that last one. He says, Suppose we concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But the same goes for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco to Muslim parents, he probably would not be a pluralist. Does it follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? So what's my point? My point is that the pursuit of inclusivity that relativizes everything ultimately relativizes itself. No one is truly inclusive. No one is truly all-inclusive. It's just not possible. We all have to base our lives upon some set of exclusive truth claims. Christianity is doing the same thing that everyone does. So where does that leave us? How do we move forward if total inclusivity is impossible, if everyone is making exclusive truth claims? Where does that leave us? How should Christians in particular proceed? That takes us to our final point, flexibility. You know, one of the most offensive claims that Christianity makes is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It's not by good works. This is just Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. And many people find that offensive to some degree. You know, someone may say, you mean to tell me that if someone is a good person, that they aren't necessarily saved, and someone who is a bad person could be saved. This good person that I know who isn't a Christian, they're an atheist or some other religion, this good person isn't saved because they don't believe the right thing, but this person over here who's a bad person but believes, they're saved? The answer from a Christian perspective is, That's exactly right. Good person or not, there is no other name by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Salvation is in no one but Jesus. But the idea that makes salvation by grace through faith alone so offensive, the premise that that underlies finding that offensive is that good people should find salvation because they're good. Essentially, salvation by works. But do you realize how exclusive that is? Do you see how that's actually more exclusive? It does more excluding than Christianity does. Do you see that? Because if salvation is tied to being good, then that excludes bad people. If salvation is tied to being good, then very few could hope to be saved. If you have to be good to be saved, you're probably not saved. In fact, if salvation is tied to being good, I'll let you in on a little secret, no one would be saved which is the most exclusive thing you could possibly believe. But salvation is not tied to being good. It is by grace alone through faith alone, which makes Christianity somewhat paradoxically inclusive in its exclusivity. It's inclusive in its exclusivity. Do you see what I mean? It's exclusive in that there really is only one way. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than Jesus. It is exclusive. 
but it's also inclusive in that absolutely anyone can find salvation. Anyone can be saved in Jesus' name because it's by grace through faith and not by works, which means that anyone can find salvation. Christianity is incredibly inclusive. There's only one way, but absolutely anybody is able to find that one way. It's inclusive in its exclusivity. It's flexible, you could say. There's a certain flexibility to Christianity. Now, there are limits, obviously. Like, imagine I was holding a, you know, a popsicle stick. You can flex a popsicle stick. It bends. starts out perfectly straight, but you can put some bend in it. So I'm holding this popsicle stick, giving it some bend, but there comes a certain point where it would break, right? So it's flexible, but it's not infinitely flexible. It's not a rubber band. It's a popsicle stick. There does come a point where it breaks, and the same goes for Christianity. There's a certain flexibility to Christianity, but only to a point. And so on the one hand, there's room to flex. That's why we have different denominations. We have those who baptize infants. We have those who are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. We have those who don't baptize infants. We have those who are more charismatic. We have those who are more rigid. We have those who ascribe to dispensational theology. We have those who ascribe to covenant theology. We have cessationists and continualists. All of those are within the flexibility of Christianity. But on the other hand, there are fundamental beliefs of Christianity that if you deny, if you flex far enough, you break it. You snap the popsicle stick, things that strike at the core of the gospel message, where salvation is found. Or, or the Trinity, one God, three persons, or the person of Christ, two per, one person, two natures, or the resurrection, or that God created everything from nothing. You don't have to believe exactly how he created it, but you do have to believe that he created it. So Christianity is flexible up to a point after which it breaks, but it is flexible. There's another area where we can see Christianity's flexibility, and it's its cultural flexibility. In our passage, there's something about Peter and John that surprises the religious leaders. Uh, Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They perceived that Peter and John were uneducated, just common men. And those religious leaders had a pretty exclusive outlook of who could get close to God, of who could do God's work. You have to be from the right family. You have to be educated. You have to know the right people. You have to work the right internship, get the right degrees from the right institutions. Then and only then could you be a high priest or a captain of the temple or a Sadducee. But then Peter and John show up, and they heal this lame man miraculously and proclaim with boldness the mighty works of God, and it stumps the religious leaders. They're just commoners. They're uneducated. What are people like them doing with the things of God? You know, the religious leaders had a very exclusive outlook on who could serve God and in what ways. And so Peter and John astonished them. But Peter and John show that Christianity is much more inclusive. It's much more flexible than the so-called cultural elites think. You know, in God's kingdom, in fact, the cultural elite aren't elite at all. It's the first who are last and the last who are first. Because Christianity is a faith for anyone. It's a religion for everyone. It's for the commoner. All are freely called to receive and accept the gospel message that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus died for them, that Jesus died for you. 
And you know, as Acts goes on and the rest of the New Testament goes on, one of the clearest messages is that the gospel is for all nations. It's not just for one nation. It's not just for Israel. It's for all nations. It's for the Gentiles, for all people groups. To join the people of God, to become a Christian, it doesn't mean you have to become Jewish culturally. You can keep your culture and still become a Christian. And sure, the gospel and the teachings of Jesus will likely critique your culture. It critiques all cultures. But it also will affirm your culture. It affirms all cultures in some ways. And most importantly, the gospel will fulfill your culture's deepest longings. I mean, look at Christianity and the world today. It's the only religion that's truly a world religion. 90% of Muslims live in the Middle East or North Africa. 95% of Hindus live in India or neighboring countries. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. These aren't really world religions because they're not spread throughout the world. But Christianity is. 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% live in Central and South America. 22% and rising in Africa. 15% and rising in Asia. Only 12% in North America. You see, Christianity is everywhere. No one continent dominates or centers Christianity. It's all over the world because Christianity is for everyone. Christianity is culturally flexible. Uh, There's a a man named Laman Sane. Uh, He actually passed away in 2019. But Laman Sane was a professor of history at Yale, and he was born in Gambia in Africa. And he, uh, he contrasts the different approaches Uh, between Christianity and secularism toward Africans. And he says that at the core of being African is the belief that the world is spiritual, that the world is full of good spirits and evil spirits, and at times that causes a desire among Africans for protection from evil spirits. But if someone like him, an African like him, goes to an institution like Harvard or Yale, which are devoted to secularism, they'll speak out of both sides of their mouth to him. They'll say on the one side, we're so glad that you're here. We love Africa, and we're excited for you to bring your diverse African perspective to our institution. We would love to learn about your culture, to eat your food, for you to wear your traditional African clothing. But on the other side, they will say, your African belief that the world is spiritual is wrong. You need to come to understand that the fear you have of evil spirits could be solved by seeing that there's no spirits at all, good or evil. The whole world is material, and everything has a scientific explanation. You'll see. And that's the secular approach to the African. But Christianity takes the core African conviction about the world being spiritual. It takes it seriously. It engages with it. It redirects it. It fulfills it, really. Christianity says, you're right. The world is spiritual. There is a spiritual realm. There are evil spirits. But did you know that God, who is a spirit, became a man named Jesus? He entered the physical realm, and then he died on the cross and resurrected, defeating death and all evil spirits. Jesus defeated the principalities and powers of the spiritual realm that plague our world, and now he rules and reigns and protects us. Do you see how the secular perspective snuffs out African culture? and indeed all other sorts of cultures, but Christianity is culturally flexible. You can be a Christian without renouncing your culture. In fact, your culture's deepest longings can be fulfilled in Christianity. They can be fulfilled in Jesus. 
Christianity is inclusive in its exclusivity. It's flexible. And so what should we do? What should we do? Well, let me point you to verses 19 and 20. The religious leaders tell Peter and John to stop speaking about Jesus, and here's what they say. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What should we do? Speak of what we have seen and heard. If you're worried that Christianity might be perceived as exclusive, tell people about it. It's actually more exclusive to keep it to yourself than to share, right? Sharing is a way we make Christianity more inclusive. You know, the, the pastor search committee was talking this week about the reality that there is a very large Indian and a very large Afghan population in the Tri-Cities area, and yet there are few, maybe none, here this morning, or most mornings. But because of the cultural flexibility of Christianity, we know for sure that there is a path for an Afghan or for an Indian to come to faith. Christianity, Jesus will speak to the deepest longings of that Afghan, of that Indian. I'm not saying I know exactly what that is, but I know for sure there's something. And maybe, just maybe, this church, this congregation, you will play a role in figuring out what that is and share the gospel in a winsome and persuasive way with these groups that traditionally aren't Christian, but who in God's sovereignty happen to be our neighbors. And then lastly, We know the only name by which anyone can be saved. We know Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the only Savior. And as we speak about him, as we share about him, many, maybe most, might not be persuaded. Some may be offended. Some might get angry. Some may even try to hurt us. Maybe not physically, but certainly in other ways. And so what should we do if that happens. Well, look, we truly do know the only path to salvation. That can sound prideful, but we believe that that's true. We're totally right about the path to salvation, and we're seeking to share it with others out of love for them so that everyone can know what we know, so that everyone can be saved. And yet you can be sure that there will always be people who are not happy that we're trying to share that. And They may, in one way or another, try to hurt us somehow. In those moments, look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus handled similar situations. Jesus, even better than us, knew the only path to salvation. And Jesus, even more than us, was the most correct person in history. He knew the way to God with absolute certainty and declared it, and yet people hated him for it. They hated what he said, and they set out to kill him. And what did Jesus do? How did he respond in those situations? Did he fight back? Did he say, forget you guys, I'm leaving? No. Jesus didn't fight back. He didn't leave when people tried to hurt him. He let them. He let them kill him. And it was the most persuasive act in history. The irony of Jesus letting himself be hurt, letting himself be killed, was that it was actually the means through which the people who killed him could be saved. It means means by which everyone could be saved. It was the means by which you were saved. That single act 
eventually persuaded people all over the world and throughout history that God exists, that God loves them, and that there's no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And so what should we do? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for revealing yourself to us, for being gracious and merciful toward us, even when we are rebellious and sinful. Father, we thank you for your son that made a way possible for us to be saved, for our sins to be forgiven, for our debt to be paid. Father, all glory belongs to you alone, to your son alone, to the spirit alone. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us with boldness, just like Peter and John had. Empower us with boldness to speak about what we have seen and heard. We pray this all in your name. Amen.